action. Welcome, students, to the Need to Know More podcast for Theo 102. This week, we are talking about modernity. Do you need to know more? This is where we're talking about the more. <laughs> Modernism. Um, this is one of my favorite periods. Really? Why? Uh, well, Why do you like it In so my much? own academic training, mm-hmm. is the ancient world, ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, etc. Right. And then- I have a big, big gap, but then my specialties of teaching and research come back into play in modernity in the way that the Bible has been interpreted and just the way that people, you know, that kind of break, that huge breakdown. And indeed, I have a lecture coming on it well, in the series, which I'm excited to see. Spoiler alert, it's really good, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, um, yeah it, this this is the a time period where I think most of us, myself included, we start to recognize more of the world. Right. Um, we've, we've been in a weird land. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've yeah. been in a strange place with like a lot of this stuff because it's just, you're almost still in the ancient world all the way through the medieval period, even mm-hmm. though that isn't totally true. There were huge technological advances mm-hmm. in plowing mm-hmm. and sowing and farming and whatnot done in education in the medieval period. But the modern self as we know it, this is now really familiar, right? Yes. And I think just even just ways of talking and thinking, you can mm-hmm. feel it. It's starting to feel... Um, more directly connected to the world as we know it today. And mm-hmm. um, we're really, we're, we're starting to deal with some key figures who, if you go to church or if you've been in church at all, you've probably heard their names. Like I'm going to guess that it's not every day that you hear Julian of Norwich in your, whatever your, um, in, a, in a typical American right. um, Protestant church. But it is... Uh, Martin Luther is frequently quoted. Uh, John Calvin is frequently quoted in uh, sermons still to this day. So you're starting to get right. to some really big thinkers that have um, are still really alive in our current context. Absolutely. So, and Luther's quite a character. Well, this is a thing that I find students, I mean, I'm getting really, I'm lowering the bar here. I'm getting super blunt. Like students <laughs> don't understand the fact that the churches that they go to and not everybody. This doesn't describe all of you, but I bet it describes a good seventy percent of, of the people listening to this probably go to a church, mm-hmm. and you don't even probably think about the fact that your church is a quote Protestant church because that's not a term that you use right. in your church. And right. your church is like a direct spiritual offshoot of modernity and Martin Luther's thing from the fifteen hundreds. That's what it is. So if you go to a church and that church is not Catholic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's what you are. Like you're one of these. Yes. So in addition to finding, these are our theological ancestors for most students in the class. And I think just like any family trait, you can feel the, the, the affinities, you know, mm-hmm. like if you're with your grandparent and then you see that you have some sort of similar facial expression or something like that. Um, you can see some, how some of those ideas have been handed down over time. And it's, it's really stunning to um, see how important these ideas were. If there's one thing about this period that feels really different for most students that I teach is how issues and ideas about the person of God and the life of the Christian and the status of the Bible and things like that, these were matters of life or death. Like when I'm teaching um, history classes and we cover the modern period, um, I and and really any any period before 
the very recent history, mm-hmm. and I say, do you think someone should be killed for <laughs> right. a wrong belief? And students will say, no, 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 no. Like, well, these people thought that that could be a death sentence. That's just so weird, right? I, I just, the thought that, I mean, in a way, I mean, this is like a mini- a mini Theo pop culture smackdown within the need to know more <laughs> is like, should you really, should you treat things that seriously? Like with death or even excommunication in one sense, it's like, okay, if you actually think that what's at stake is a matter of heaven and hell and salvation, mm-hmm. it's like, you'd almost be cr- in a way you could come up with a logic. That's like, it would almost be crazy not to treat it with that kind of severity. Um, I mean, would Luther have been put to death if, if, if possible? Yes, definitely. <laughs> in fact, in fact, students are going to read about the fact that he was um, one of the the major reasons why he and his teaching survived was because he was protected mm-hmm. by a certain set of royalty in in his homeland in Germany. Um, some from princes, some princes, going um, from castle to castle. Hiding. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like Robin Hood. It's probably not as glamorous as that. In fact, it's certainly not as glamorous as that. But yeah, I mean, these were. The, the people in this era, um, these reforming characters and dissenting voices within um, Roman Catholicism sometimes were put to death. It was a very, very serious, uh, very serious thing to be arguing about theology. And in this era, they all, it all, this era also gave birth to some of the big philosophical reasons for why we don't do that now, which has to do with um, human autonomy, like that you are an individual right. and that your conscience, um, that you should have rights and a conscience, like these kind of ideas start brewing and they, they really come to fruition later. But, um, like the idea that you would dissent from your church and have an unorthodox belief right. and that not be an issue of life or death, right. we're the weird ones historically that we think like, yeah, sure, right. whatever. We can all come to church and get along and it doesn't matter. Students, uh, right. students now don't even want to kick anybody out from a church. No, no, you wouldn't even want anybody to feel bad. I spent, <laughs> right. I think this question of like where this world came from and like how anyone even came to inhabit it is like one of the big intellectual questions of world history. Yeah, yeah. And so to engage in it, oh, students, to read and to think about this question. There's a book I actually read on this topic that I love talking about because I'm so proud that I read it at all. It's called <laughs> it's called A Secular Age by oh, Charles Taylor. That Charles Taylor is a major so Charles Taylor Charles Taylor's <laughs> major philosopher, but he basically went about I mean, one of the projects of that 1000-page philosophy history of ideas it's long, book it's long. is to basically try to explain how this thing, this modernity came about and why it came about. And he even talks about stuff like a fr- the idea of a public square mm-hmm. or a free press right? Um, right. as being like part of what it meant. Like the idea that even as a citizen, you could even talk in mm-hmm. a public sphere and not like have your head cut off for saying things <laughs> is yeah. not an idea that is taken for granted in world history. Yeah. I think American students in particular are just like, what, you know, because we have a much different relationship set up between the individual and the, the um, a religious institution and mm-hmm. a, a government, like the idea of a secular government, like secularity, right. <laughs> even that didn't exist. And we've talked about that earlier with the, on the week where we read and talked about Christendom, you know, like mm. this idea that every, that the church was this governing body that was in essence, the, the transcendent, mm. they call it the trans-European um, authority that starts to break down in the modern era in large part due to these dissenting people, these big, 
right. um, big thinker. So it's, I don't know, we're going to explore this era for the next couple of weeks. And um, there are pros and cons, but in some, sometimes I like to just think about how exciting this era must have been too. And, and disruptive, like exciting, disruptive. Would you have liked to have lived in this era? No way. No. Why not? <laughs> Why? Um, well, because of of like things like infant mortality and maternal mortality. I probably would have died at a very young age. It's and it true. was a hard life. Mm. But I like to kind of imagine what it was like. Would you? Would you have liked to have lived in well, this time period? Well, no, for the reasons that you said. But there's like a part of me, there's a spark that thinks to have lived in an era when yeah. things were actually changing like that. And maybe, who knows, maybe we would see in a, in a thousand years that we were living in an area that was super decisive. But I even think about this time period like 500 years ago, which is like for Christians, there were so many things that could really like just like totally set your imagination on fire. Like right. we hadn't explored even the depths of the oceans or, or outer space or, you know, even like far continents, like things certainly had been subtle, but like things hadn't even been explored. Like we just, there was just so much we didn't even know. Right. And now we kind of live in this like sad era where it's like, well, we got to the moon. We can't really go that much further. We're thinking about trying to go to Mars. We're kind of stuck and we've kind of explored and exploited every end of every continent on earth. Uh. But then, you know, they kind of had things you could still, you could still believe in monsters back in Luther's time <laughs> in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like you could, you could credibly like, you know, see stuff like that. And I think those kind of things, whether you believe in them literally or not, or whether people did then, okay, I'm not really making a comment on that. I'm just saying to have your, like there, it was a revolutionary time. And as we get into the next couple hundred years, like literal revolutions, like leading up to the American revolution and mm -hmm, the French revolution, mm -hmm. these kinds of things just changed like massively. But Luther, oh, this leads to my next question for you. Do you think you would have, how do you think you would have gotten along with Martin Luther personally? Oh, well, I think I would have gotten along with Martin Luther kind of in the same way that I would have gotten along with the Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. which would have been to say like, I would have gotten along as well as you could with somebody who is exceedingly ornery and cantankerous <laughs> and always had to like get the last word in. Oh, That's yeah. my own thought. How about you? What What do you think? I tend I tend to be, I, I, I can handle very strong personalities like that. It just <laughs> yeah. kind of rolls. So I kind of, I, I like it, but part of me thinks, you know, it got a little bit overboard. Like you wonder with some of the, the language and the polemic, the, yes. the hard speech against enemies, if he crossed lines over into, you know, the kind of speech that say the book of James would have warned one against. Although, <laughs> side note, Martin Luther, part of his revolution was actually a revolution about, uh, he didn't get out a, a knife and cut things out of the Bible or the canon, but mm -hmm. he he certainly had views about the canon. This is a particular view about Martin Luther that might be worth sneaking in, which is Luther kind of had this idea about, uh, about the Bible, which was like, he thought scripture, holy scripture was defined as that which testifies to Christ mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and not everything testifies to Christ in the same way, even to the point where there were some books that he thought really didn't at all and shouldn't even have been in there. Yeah. I think just rough sketch of books that Luther was at least like, um, not so sure about were like the book of James that I just uh -huh. mentioned, um, because, um, because he thought it contradicted some things in Romans about how a person got saved, namely by faith or some other way. And also the book of Revelation, he was not super Ugh, into. I know. And that one just makes me very sad because sad. I love the book of Revelation. That is my favorite book. Um, those who are who are Lutherans or Protestants today um, have to deal with the fact that, uh, have to deal with a hard historical fact about Martin Luther's thought, which was that he had a problem with Jews. He was, yes. he was, he was not just anti-Jewish, like thought that the Jewish religion was a problem, but 
had a problem with Jewish people as people, um, as did a lot of people in his time. But there's just a legacy there that's that has to be dealt with. And, you know, Martin Luther participated in that. Yeah, that one is a really hard one for students to um, to understand, I think, especially students who come from Lutheran churches that he wrote um, a famous pamphlet uh, called On the Jews and Their Lies that is um, exactly right. It is anti-Jewish people and has all sorts of terrible recommendations for how they ought to be um, treated in Europe. And sadly, um, you know, he's a a German man writing um, and hundreds of years later, some of those same concepts come to play again. So yeah, uh, in the Holocaust, yeah. There's a legacy there. I mean, you know, Germany was a place where there was this, but there was this huge revolution there. There was this huge breakdown and, and Luther was right there with this huge personality, you know, to basically insult the heck out of everybody and just really make a problem. You could make the argument though, I wonder what you make of it, Dr. Payne. You could say, yes, the form that this took and the words and so on, not the best, but in order to make this kind of break, which was spiritually necessary for the church at this time, you needed somebody like that to actually make it work. Yeah. What do, I mean, what do you think? I don't know well, if, I don't know if I believe that or not. I'm just asking you what you think of that. I, I sort of, am, I have an, a lively imagination about people and like the big thinkers. I like to imagine what their lives were like and what they were, you know, how they were to be around. And I think, I guess my, my response would be, I think it takes all kinds because Mm -hmm. Luther was just this lightning rod. I have a feeling that he was just like the guy who could never not say something, you know, (laughs) like even if it put himself in danger, even if it ruined his career, even if it, whatever, like he, he was just compelled. And I think by his own account, he was like that. He was somebody who took things. He was just an extreme guy. Like as a young man, um, he, uh, had this like overwhelming panic and anxiety that um, God was angry with him that he wouldn't be saved. I've been there, and he went to like extreme lengths to mitigate that. And eventually, you know, he had his famous revelation about the grace of God. But I think he was just really intense and and probably hard to be in the same room. Um, you know, it'd be hard to be in the same room with him. But then there are other folks who we don't even really get much. Of, comparatively, we don't get much of an impression of their personality. Like John Calvin, who is every bit as influential, I think, as as Martin Luther, yes. wrote prolifically, but wrote almost nothing about his personal life. And you don't see as much of his personality. So I sort of imagine, I'm like, what was he like? Was he, right. you know, somebody right. who was just hard to be around? I mean, part right. of it's just like, if Luther were, were alive, he definitely would have a massive Twitter following. <laughs> and he'd be super obnoxious on it. And he'd probably be like the meanest tweeter oh, man. ever. Can I insult you with a couple of Luther insults? Oh, please I, do. By this the is way, my favorite. I have the, I, un, unknown to you on my on my computer here, I pulled, I pulled up the Luther insulter. I love These are the actual insulter. quotes from Martin Luther. Dr. Payne, you- You can Google it, students. We can't say much of them all, many of them out loud. You are the Roman <laughs> Nimrod and a teacher of sin. <laughs> I'm going to read another one. Okay. You deserve not only- you deserve not only to be given no food to eat, but also to have the dogs set upon you and to be pelted with horse manure. Oh, wow. Okay, I've got one for you. All right. Oh, you wolf in Christendom. 
<laughs> yeah, students, if you if you want, you can just Google <laughs> Luther insult generator, and um, it's it's the best thing. Like, oh, here's a good one. I beg everyone who can to flee from you as far as the <laughs> devil himself. <laughs> People probably do think that. <laughs> um, okay, okay, I got one for you. Okay. Oh, I can't read that one out loud. Oh, um, yeah. Some of them are really. He had a he had a potty mouth. We'll just say. May God punish you. I say you shameless, barefaced liar, devil's mouthpiece, who dares to spit out before God, before all the angels, before the dear son, before all the world, your devil's filth. Are you ready? Yeah. I've got I've got an even more poignant one, and it's only two words. Oh no. This is for you, Dr. Dope. Yep. Dr. Sow. <laughs> oh, I found a two word for you. Stupid spirit. <gasps> Whoa. Yikes. I I just okay, as you can see, um oh, okay, here's one more. Sure. You are more corrupt than any Babylon or Sodom ever was and as far as I can see are characterized by a completely <laughs> depraved, hopeless and notorious godlessness. <laughs> I'm sad He's that it's true. He's so fun. His I mean, it's mean. Oh. It is mean, mean, mean. But I hope students you can see that um a couple of different things here that the the um the strength of the rhetoric mm -hmm. i mean these people were taking things really seriously and i think that that could compete with some of the stuff that you see on twitter and some of it's really like ultra base and mm -hmm. and we can't repeat it here so he had <laughs> he had a potty mouth but also this to me speaks of and i talked about it in the lecture the power of the written word like the fact that all of this conversation is preserved and available to us is astounding. And that was a really new development in this era. Like people were certainly having theological arguments prior to this, but we just don't know a lot of them because a lot of the losers, right. their writings were burned. And right. in fact, um, the Roman Catholic Church tried to do that with Luther, but they couldn't because of the printing press oh, had just, made things cheaper. Which so. you could you could totally you could look at from a totally secular perspective as just a coincidence, which you know, Luther was able to take advantage of unknown to him, or you could look at it as a spiritual breakthrough that allowed this to happen. Speaking That's of break, amazing. speaking of breakthroughs, I wonder about, and, and perhaps this will lead into what we want to read. I think today, yes. a, a prayer by Martin Luther, but mm -hmm. I wonder just about like Martin Luther's spiritual breakthrough, like the psychology of it. Like, like you mentioned him being in this state of like anxiety, just yeah. like about his faith. Like what, like, like, could you explain what that anxiety was exactly? And like, how do you assess it? Or have you ever had an experience like that where, you know, you feel the way oh, that you felt? Oh, okay. Maybe? That's a great, you know what I can say, I'll start off by saying I have not had an experience like what he mm. describes. Mm -hmm. I think because, um, I was raised in a version of Christianity that was really intent on, um, like, one of the major points that they made was to talk about God as a very like loving, caring father type figure yeah. and a very like forgiving God is like, mm -hmm. Jesus just loves you. Like that, that was what I was, that was a construction of God that was given to me by the church that I grew up in. Yeah. And there are pros and cons to that. Like, I think it would have been okay for me to be a little bit like, well, God's holy too, right? And has right. <laughs> like a vision of justice for the world that I ought to recognize and try and live up to and repent from if I'm not living up to it. So I'm not saying that that was a good thing, but I didn't have that. And what we can see from Martin Luther from his own writings is that he had a really intense anxiety about how he would know that he had done enough right. to be in right relationship with God, mm -hmm. which 
his major frustration is the students will read today, or not even frustration, like his major bone to pick, I guess, with the, the Roman Catholic Church was the practice of indulgences. Mm-hmm. He thought um, that it ended up being equal to works-based righteousness. Like basically you weren't, you were only going to be made right with God. Um, like you, you would never be made right with God and you would just keep working and working and working. I heard a story about Martin Luther too, during this period of crisis that he saw his, his, his confessor or his spiritual mentor, I think his last name was like von Staupitz or something (laughs) like that. Is this in the reading? Maybe it was in the reading. Yeah, I think so. If it is, I'm just repeating it because I think it's actually worth sharing to just know about the complexity of this. Like Luther came to his spiritual advisor with this exact problem and said, Mm -hmm. I just, God is a taskmaster. I just see God like constantly like about to punish, punish, punish. And his, his, what we might call now his Catholic spiritual advisor, although it was just the church at the time, um, told him like, no, like God is not like that. Like you shouldn't think of God like that. And, but for, but for whatever the reason, like Luther wasn't able to get over it. Yeah. I think I sort of wonder, like this was before the, the advent of things like psychology and stuff. So I think if he Mm. were talking today, people would be like, dude, chill out. Like this is, this is like some sort of sickness or something like that. But to him, it was a profound problem that only an experience with the scripture could mend. Right. And he has a very famous encounter where he talks about how he was just overwhelmed by this um, experience of the grace of God. Yeah. And you, students will read about that um, this week. I think we should pray a prayer or read a prayer that yeah. he wrote that kind of reflects his his feelings of, of inadequacy about himself, but then his feelings of confidence in God. Yeah, let's do it. All right, I'll start. Okay. Behold, Lord, an empty vessel that needs to be filled. My Lord, fill it. I am weak in faith. Strengthen thou me. I am cold in love. Warm me and make me fervent that my love may go out to my neighbor. I do not have a strong and firm faith. At times I doubt and am unable to trust thee altogether. O Lord, help me. Strengthen my faith and trust in thee. In thee I have sealed the treasures of all I have. I am poor. Thou art rich and didst come to be merciful to the poor. I am a sinner. Thou art upright. With me there is an abundance of sin. In thee is the fullness of righteousness. Therefore I will remain with thee of who I can receive, but to whom I may not give. Amen. It's a great prayer. I think it's pretty great. I think it 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 kind of sums up his beliefs about himself and about God. Well, one thing that struck me as I read it is that when we think about modernity and the kind of like humanism, you know, and, and as, as you pointed out in the lecture, like it's not like secular humanism, right. but it's a humanism that really is a Christian humanism. Like really until you have full-blown secularity, all humanism is Christian. But with the Renaissance, you have this renewed focus on people. And in a way, it struck me as a very um, almost like anti-humanistic prayer in mm. this sense, because he's basically taking the role of the person and just saying like, I'm a nobody, I'm poor, I'm nothing, I'm a sinner. And like God has everything that's good and he doesn't. And maybe maybe like later there would be other thinkers who would just like be horrified at the way that he would put down, you know, humans. Like would any of us really talk about ourselves like this? Like I'm a nobody, I'm a loser, I have no faith. I mean, in a way though, I do think of myself that way actually. 
a lot of times. And so the prayer resonates with me spiritually, but it's quite striking to see these dualities, right? Yeah. I think that, I think if we were, if either of us were literary theorists, we would talk about the symmetry mm-hmm. here where it's kind of count point, counterpoint. I mean, point, counterpoint, right. point, counterpoint, point, I'm bad, point, God's good, or mm-hmm. counterpoint, God's good. And I think that that, that um, I don't know, that feeling toward God is something that m- many Christians at some point in their lives can identify with. What about you? Do you think you would feel like Luther? Have you felt like Luther? Yeah. I mean, I have felt like Luther, although it's, it's kind of like a battle in my soul. Like this idea that humans are just totally depraved like this is a very old idea in Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people credit, um, Augustine of Hippo from the, from the 400s AD with an idea like this, that, Mm -hmm. that really there's just something, and you can trace it back to like the book of Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve do their thing, like that something is just like, mystically kind of like at the deepest level, just like broken about people. And Luther was very dark. I think in some ways I have found comfort and expression in my life of faith through these very dark thoughts about this kind of thing and about myself. I think the trouble is like, if you allow them to go too far, they become narcissistic and selfish almost. (laughs) When you're like constantly thinking about how bad you are, you're thinking about you. Right. It's like all about (laughs) me, 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 me. And I think that there's this other side of faith too. It's like, so yes, you have the brokenness of the depravity and the fall. It's all, I mean, for me as a Christian, like I believe that's all hundred percent real, but then you also have this idea that people are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. But so it's like, is the image of God and people totally erased? No way. Like there's no way you could claim that as a Christian. Like yeah. you could say it has been obscured, marred, damaged, like any number of terms. Mm-hmm. But so I worry that like language like this would make me feel as though like the, there was no image of God left in me. And if there's no image of God left in me, like what is there to, what is there even worth saving? I think that that really gets at your, um, just the, the need to have many voices mm. in your Christian life. Mm. Like for, for, there will be some students who are just like, yes, those <laughs> words are like speaking to my soul. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that moment of your life where that's that, um, is speaking to you. That's great. I think there will be other seasons though, I would guess, Mm -hmm. um, where, where there's another voice from the past who will build you up in a different way. Yeah. 